don't forget to follow us on our Facebook page, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, on Twitter, at RealGilbertACP, and on Instagram, Gilbert Podfried, P-O-D-F-R-I-E-D. You see, it's kind of a pun on the last name. Ah, never mind. Gilbert Gottfried, this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're here once again at Nutmeg Post with Frank Verderosa. And our guest this week is a best-selling author and comedy historian with a vast, almost scary knowledge of old-time show business, Vice Magazine referred to him as the human encyclopedia of comedy. And Los Angeles Magazine called him the king of comedy lore. His work has been praised by the Atlantic Monthly, the Chicago Tribune, Vanity Fair, and Comedy Central. His website, Classic Showbiz, a site devoted to comedians and showbiz, was called invaluable by the Onions AV Club. And his new book from Grove Press, The Comedian's Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. Please welcome to the podcast, unofficial Jack Carter biographer, Cliff <laughs> Nesterhoff. I thought you were going to say unofficial jackass. Yes. Well, that too. <laughs> Which brings us, I and thank you for the one sentence about me in a book about comedy. <laughs> Well, you've uh, you're in there a lot more than uh, some other people. Uh, I think Red Skelton is uh, is maybe not mentioned at all, but you know every person that is in there, uh, uh, less than one sentence. I have heard from the biggest fan of those particular people. So some Red Skelton worshiper who's ninety years oh, old yeah. sent me a. <laughs> scathing email how dare you don't you realize he was on television for 20 years don't you realize the rolling stones debuted <laughs> on episode i'm like jesus just well, the, the book was originally supposed to be uh just vaudeville uh through to the mobster right i i days. pitched uh the idea for the book that i pitched was about comedians and the mafia because if you worked nightclubs in the 30s 40s 50s or 60s nine times out of ten your boss was the mob and i found that kind of fascinating because people talk about frank sinatra and the mob uh but what they don't realize is the reason he was connected to the mob is because he was playing all those clubs so anybody who played those clubs was mob connected including the comedians and i always found that more interesting because because it seemed more perilous if your vocation is ridicule than, you know. I, I always, I, what, what I find interesting is it's accepted that comi- uh, that singers back then, a lot of them were owned by the mob. Yeah. Where they did them a favor once 
And now if they call him up and said, oh, my third cousin is having a birthday party. That's right. Fly across the world and you sing at it. That's they right. had to do it. Yeah. Joey Bishop had to emcee the wedding of Sam Giacana's daughter in Chicago, the famous mobster Sam Giacana. Uh, he just didn't have a choice. He said, I need somebody to emcee the wedding. Are you available? Well, no, I'm not really available. Well, you're doing it, and it's on March 5th. You know, you didn't have a choice. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there were a bunch of comedians owned by the mob. Uh, most of the guys that were working in the 40s and 50s in nightclubs, whether it was Jack Carter, Shecky Green, Joey Bishop, uh, uh, so many of them. They, they Even Henny Youngman talks about, you know, in his autobiography, uh, he said most of them were were great guys, even though they were murderers and thieves. Well, like the Sammy the Shore says that in there's a point in the book. Where in my he, book, he, yeah. Does he witness a murder? Yeah, somebody... <laughs> I mean, I'm, go, I'm I don't know how much of Sammy Shore's word you can trust. <laughs> but he said he was playing a place called Dan's Supper Club in Danville, Illinois, when somebody was assassinated in the back of the club while he was on stage. And he kind of did uh, – he started playing the trumpet on stage to kind of distract people. He played the Saints go marching in while people were running out of the club. And uh, after that, the boss of the club gave him a raise and booked him for an extra two weeks because he thought he handled, handled it so well. <laughs> and then he says, great guys, great yeah, guys. great guys, great yeah, guys. Yeah, I mean, I've heard like Jerry Lewis say that – they were terrific to them. You want to introduce our other guest who's sitting in with us? Oh, or... not really. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, Cliff. <laughs> it's written there. I'm not going to say a fucking word. <laughs> introduce me. <laughs> okay. It's written there. Yeah. Oh, you wanna, okay. You want to wing it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to wing it because I don't know you. You know who I am? <laughs> not particularly. We only go back 35 years. Yes. <laughs> Also sitting in <laughs> is a former two-time guest of this show, an award-winning illustrator, a satiric artist whose work has appeared in Time, Newsweek, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stone, and The New Yorker, the Vermeer of the Borscht Belt, and the King of Judah. That, that's uh, a nickname I called him back in the National Lampoon days. Judah. Our old buddy, Drew Friedman. Thank you. Thank you. I, okay, don't think, you. I don't think Gilbert ever knew my name. It was just, he'd see me. Judah. Judah. He'd follow me around. Judas, because he used to do dots for the show. Oh yeah, yeah. Point right. point he would show up right? at my apartment unannounced, and I'd look out the keyhole, and you know, Judas. <laughs> I knew it was there, and I'd let him in, and he'd sit in silence and watch Lon Chaney Jr. movies. Show up in the parka, <laughs> the old parka with yeah, the hood. Yeah, I'd have to yeah. undress him, yeah. take his hat off, <laughs> and sit him down, and then my wife Kathy would come home from work, and she says, "What's he? What's he doing here?" <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna send him home to his mom. I, I remember my introduction to your work, Drew, was uh, Howard Stern's Private Parts, that book. Right. And I remember seeing the tableau of uh, William Frawley like, uh, being sodomized or an orgy of some Something kind. Something like that. Was, that was a component of and it. And I was, I was young. I was, think I was 12 or 13 or 14 when I saw it, and I was kind of a stupid kid. And I could not tell if it was real or not. Well, was I wasn't sure if this was like fact and this was actually <laughs> photos that right. had been photocopied. 
mean, yeah, I was like, what we were trying to pull off um, in that early stuff. Like, is this really happening? You know? Yeah, well, it was very successful disturbing. But Cliff and I touched base a couple of years ago when he was doing his incredible blog, and he interviewed me, and I just loved what he was doing. I was amazed to learn he was like 28 years old, which blew my mind. Still blows my mind. about these forgotten comedians. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, it's funny, too, because I had heard about vaudevillians and what they went through. And in your book, you go even further. So, like, they always ask comedians nowadays, oh, tell us about your nightmare gigs. Right. But the worst nightmare gig you could have nowadays is a vacation in Hawaii right. compared to the vaudevillians. Yeah, because in those days, uh, just commuting was impossible. There were no airplanes, you know, so you were transferring. So many of the vaudeville uh, palaces, I found a list when I was researching for the Orpheum Circuit, and it listed every city that had an Orpheum Theater in, like, 1918. And, of course, there was Los Angeles, there was New York, there was Chicago, but the majority of the theaters are, like, Duluth and places like that, St. Paul or even smaller towns. And so most of the trains didn't even have direct connections or go across the country. So you finish your gig in Duluth, you go to the train station at midnight, and you have to wait till 6 in the morning for your connection to the next town. So you're sleeping in the cold outside, and uh, there was no really uh, proper union representation. There was a company union, which was kind of to circumvent real unions. So if you didn't get paid... You just didn't get paid. There was no paid. one to complain to. Nobody to Nobody complain to, to and you had to so. get to the next gig. So right. it was pretty tough. And there was something in the book like Mo from the Three Stooges said that they used to, in the room that they was called their dressing room, they used to store corn. And so it was rat infested. Rats would be tearing up. Half the time, the backstage was the storage room, you know. So even if you were, quote unquote, a star uh, playing these giant palaces that seated 5,000 people behind uh, the scenes, it was pretty uh, sorted. Yeah, rat infested, no proper uh, heating or ventilation. A lot of the vaudeville theaters were closed in the summer because they were too hot to even function. They didn't have proper air conditioning and things like that. So, yeah, it was... uh, uh, very odd. And even the big theaters like the Palace that people have heard of that were considered very ornate. Um, George Burns talks about how you thought you made it when you were booked at a theater like that, but you had to do like multiple shows a day. So you'd go in at 11 a.m., a theater that seated 5,000 people, but there's only 30 people in the audience right, in a place right. that seats 5,000. So you don't exactly feel like a success under those uh, circumstances. There's also the story of the hook. That, that, that people think of vaudeville as the old kind of cartoonish classic Which, hook right. to pull yeah, somebody else. It seems like something out of a cartoon. Right, yeah, but like George, George Burns telling thing. the story about was it one of the theater owners who sat in the front row and, and put a and pulled people into the audience? Yeah, with they, a called giant it, ring? they called it the hoop. The hoop. And uh, it was uh, they do it on amateur nights, so it's anybody insanity. can go up and juggle. And if the audience started to uh, boo, the the guy who ran. Uh, the theater or whoever his stagehand was had this giant hoop that they would throw over the guy, pull them forward until they fell face forward into the orchestra pit, and then everybody would wow. cheer. They should bring that back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought Pips and Sheep's Head Bay was oh, a bad yes. <laughs> <laughs> And there was also a story uh, that, you know, well, the Three Stooges, of course, used to be with Ted Healy. Right. And they had a thing where they would jump into a pool like a uh, like a pool on stage right 
And 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 one time there was a, a tragedy occurred. Yeah, I think it's uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Shemp who joined the act after this, but one of them joined the act because there was a woman in the act. They were called the Annette Kellerman Diving Girls, even though Mo Howard was in it as as a guy, and uh, they mistimed it. And as it was sort of like you'd see in a, a carnival where they're trying to all. Uh, dive into a very tiny pool and seems like not possible. And surely enough, in one of those circumstances, it wasn't possible. And somebody jumped off the diving board and smashed their head open on the stage and died. Yeah. I was and then sure. I can't remember which stooge was, but that opened the door for them to join. It may have been Larry who joined the act because somebody uh, had died. Yeah, I think it was a girl. She died yeah. and hit her head. Wow. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, sorry. Get yeah. Well, the way Mo Howard tells it, he goes... As luck would have it, right. there was an opening <laughs> in the act well, now. Well, yeah. second, and isn't, isn't Larry only able to join the act because of a suicide? Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, right. there was another one. Uh, <laughs> a theater burned down. Right. and Yeah, Larry was under contract to somebody else. Then the theater burned down, and suddenly he was out of the contract because I think the, the guy who owned the theater burned with the theater. But yeah. Insane. And, and then I, I there's a part where you say there was this really scuzzy uh, vaudeville uh, guy, because there were about two guys who ran all of Vaudeville, right. yeah. so you couldn't say shit to them. Uh, and and his by the name of Benjamin Franklin Keith. Yes. And before he was even using comedians, <laughs> he would get people in the theater by advertising. <laughs> Premature Negro Babies. Yes, yes. <laughs> he was considered the uh, groundbreaking innovator of the incubator baby shows, oh. which became a trend, like a freak show trend, to see uh, uh, black babies uh, born prematurely under like, glass. Didn't they have those at, wor- at the World's Fair in yeah, it doesn't it sound still like going it? on? I, I mean, it had... was really kind of the the, the inception of the sideshow uh, oh, idea, yeah. but it was a it was such a huge success that there were all these people uh, copying him. It was a trend within uh, show business in the 1880s. How did that fade away? <laughs> and what it. were the? You want to bring it back? <laughs> what, were, what were the premature Negro babies made of, or were they actual? They were actual babies. They were actual yeah. premature yeah. Negro. We're talking right at the end of slavery, like the eighteen early eighteen eighties. Incredible. Yeah. So any premature uh, black baby was put. They were thrown in. The- yeah, yeah. They were in oh show business, my baby. God. Yeah. <laughs> That's how Nipsey started. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about uh, one of Burns. It's just fascinating, the vaudeville chapter. I mean, I read it three times. It's so it's just I couldn't stop reading it. It's so freaky. Tell tell us about one of George Burns' favorite acts, Swain's Rats and Cats. Swain's Rats and Cats. Now, George Burns Burns told this story later in life, and I I didn't know if it was true or not, because when I started to research it, the only... Uh, initial information I could get was all from the 1980s and it was all from George Burns. So I was like, well, I can't find anything from the 20s or teens about this act where supposedly rats were dressed as jockeys. (laughs) 
and then rode cats, real cats, as if they were racing horses. But as I was doing my research, I found an advertisement for an act called Nelson's Rats and Cats. And it didn't describe the act, but I think it was a real act. And maybe Burns got the names confused and started calling it Swain's. Yeah, but, I like or, Swain better. Or there was two competing, <laughs> oh. like there were competing Negro uh, incubator baby shows. <laughs> <laughs> competing rats and cats jockey racing cat acts it seems a little bit specious though because if you're playing a 5000 feet seat uh, movie theater or presentation house how people in the balcony would be able to see these rats on stage i'm not sure but uh, yeah george burns said that was his favorite act in the uh, in the history of i remember of show business. him saying that on tv shows right and i also i thought this well, this is something he made up as a joke. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's, it's so funny to think <laughs> that there was competition. Yes, yes. Among <laughs> the prematurely born Negro babies. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it was amazing in those days. <laughs> he's gonna, he's not gonna let go. Of no, it's the greatest thing in the world to me. <laughs> well, you know, in, in the vaudeville days, a lot of people just had moxie, but not talent. So no matter what the act was, it would get ripped off. So even I think there's a story about Gallagher and Sheen at one point where they had to post signs uh, 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 backstage that said, "Please only." One Gallagher and Sheen imitator per show because right. people were all coming up on stage and doing that uh, for, famous routine. For know? our listeners, that's uh, the Marx Brothers' uncle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Al Sheen. Sheen. Was there a premature Jewish babies act ever? <laughs> you, you, uh, you know. Frank uh, Faye would have, uh, would have seen to it yeah. that that. Uh, that didn't stick around. And then maybe they, they put them in blackface and they performed yeah. the premature Jewish babies. You in said there was a vaudeville theater in Massachusetts that was filled with seawater. Yeah, it's a story yeah. George Jessel told that uh, for some reason it was right by the port and. Uh, when the tides would come in, it would flood the dressing room, so they had to put plywood down. And as you were applying your makeup, you were balancing and teetering backstage on these, like, flotation devices. Yeah, it was part of the Sheedy Time Circuit, S-H-E-E-D-Y. And, of course, George Jessel's joke was that it should have been called the Shitty Time Circuit. But it was one of these many low-level, uh, uh, not very competitive vaudeville circuits that were kind of regional that one was just in new england and they weren't on the level of the keith circuit or the orpheum circuit. you know the weird thing is is i saw one of the few true things in man of a thousand faces mm -hmm. it shows them starting out in a vaudeville theater and they're trying to balance really? themselves on wood and she falls in this nice dress and it falls in the water. Huh. What studio made uh, Man of a Thousand Faces? Oh, I wonder if that I think was it was Universal. Wasn't it Universal? Was it? Oh, must have been Universal. Must have been. Oh, okay. That's right. I would imagine. Must have been. Cheney was Universal. It was Bud Westmore, I think, did the makeup. Because I was yeah. thinking that maybe there was a Jessel connection when he was producing films at Fox, you know, for mm. – he, he produced about 25 movies for Fox in the late 40s, early 50s. Not because George Jessel had any talent as a movie producer, but because he was gambling buddies with Daryl Zanuck, mm. so they just gave him uh, producer credit, including Nightmare Alley. It was the best film, he, the best thing he ever had his name associated with. Basically. Nightmare Alley, the great oh, sort the of Tyrone Power. Tyrone, Tyrone Power, Power. Yeah, yeah, Joan Joan that's a good yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Yes. And it's yeah. produced by George Jessel. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. When he was dating Rita Hayworth. Speaking of blackface. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you can't let this go, Frank. I didn't know that Bob Hope did blackface yes. among um, and among a lot of other people, Mae West and W. C. Fields. Yes. It was a 
Yeah, well, back in those days, now a lot of people just assume that if you did blackface, it was because you were a racist. But it was considered stage makeup. So even African-American comedians would put on blackface to exaggerate the lips and the eyes and darken themselves up because it was considered uh, theater makeup. If you put on blackface, then you were an actor, you know. And a lot of the uh, uh, comedians who in the post-Vaudeville era had started then refused to stop doing blackface, including Pigmeat Markham who people know for Here Come the Judge right, yeah. and laughing. Uh, he did blackface, even though he was a black man, right up into the 50s. And it was a big controversy, just like Amos and Andy was a mm-hmm. controversy. The NAACP was complaining to Pygmy Markham, saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing blackface anymore after World War II. And he said, no, this is tradition. This is tradition. And the reality was he was so insecure, he didn't think he could get laughs or perform unless he had blackface on because he'd been using it for 30 years. So and, it was very common. And you said there were, there were comedians who would put on blackface and do Jew material. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They would do speak with a Yiddish inflection and be wearing blackface wow. for no reason. <laughs> I always heard Al Jolson did hate black people, though. You know, oh, yeah? I've heard stories that he would drive up to Harlem and, and like, they would... Tom Leopold tells the story. Yeah. They would like so you know, again. They would like point yeah. out black people like Sammy on Schur, the street and beat the beat beat the shit out of them. Basically. Oh, gee. Jolson, and then go he'd go home to Ruby Keeler. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thank God it wasn't uh, that Al Jolson was fucking Joe Best. <laughs> Usually have stories like that. Who told you that? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, oh, uh, well this is a side note, yeah. but Robert Wool says that uh, your story of uh, of uh, Clark Gable getting it on with Andy Devine is not true. No. Could not possibly be true. All right. I, I had false information. <laughs> is, it, is there I'm not like, – I was told there's a town somewhere in the Midwest where everything's Andy Devine, where there's Andy Devine restaurants and streets still oh, to we have day. to go. There's an Allen Hale Jr. town. I know that. I, I say it's one of those stories. Clark Gable getting fucked in the ass by Andy <laughs> Devine is too good a story. Say, we're not going to yeah, let yeah. it go. Yeah. yeah I no, thought Andy like, would be I'm the bottom. Sorry. It's also oh, like – <laughs> It balances out like you, know, you have. Thank you, Andy. You have Lawrence Olivier and and, and uh, Danny Kay. Your dick feels good in my eye. Well, now that you brought it up, and we have the the showbiz expert here. Yes. I, I want to ask. It's on my list of questions. I want to ask what you know about Danny Kay and Lawrence Olivier. I know I'm going off the reservation. Uh, I, I don't know much, but I mean Danny Kay uh, certainly one of the most uh, despised people. Yeah, we've heard I, that from our yes, guests. Yes. The show business, and even like guys that were just. Despised themselves, despised Danny Kay. A lot of people despised Tony Curtis, and Tony Curtis said that Danny Kay was the worst man in the history of Hollywood, you know. And of course, there's the famous story about Danny Kay. Uh, he had a huge rivalry with Judy Garland in the early 60s when they both started working at CBS Television City after they had built a, a yellow brick road for her from her dressing room trailer into the studio. Danny Kay uh, was livid, and he started making demands on CBS. They had to build a gourmet kitchen for him on the roof of CBS Television City to placate him. And that was the same time that Paul Mazursky was one of his writers. Uh, but I don't know about the uh, the affairs of Olivier and, and Kay. But he, he Danny Kay so seems like... So you neither like, confirm nor deny. I would, well, I would like, like to Ma- confirm, though, Malcolm because he McDowell seems like... confirmed it, right? That's true. With you. Yes, he I, did. I hope it doesn't yes, sound did. too homophobic, but Danny Kay seems like the kind of guy... Who is so bitchy that I believe that? You know, just, like, just the thinking that that Lawrence Olivier left Vivian Lee for Danny Kay is like it's just like <laughs> what's that? It's like Rita Hayworth left Orson Welles for Georgie Jessel. So I'm gonna say 
that it is true that Lawrence <laughs> Olivier and Danny Kaye fucked each other in the Well, we're going to uh, get Malcolm McDowell on the show, too. And then we have Marlon, Marlon Brando and Wally Cox. Oh, that's <laughs> a horrible one. It's and, a want to think. Show. and that happened on 11th Street where they shared a penthouse. Oh, yes. It's yes. been pointed out to me. Now, they, you they purchased also furniture said... from uh, Danny Thomas as well. A guy... <laughs> A, a comedian, kind of <laughs> you know, a comedian, kind. not even inside the vaudeville theater. He was outside the vaudeville theater and was killed. Oh, yes. yes. That's right. Yeah. I'm trying to remember his name. He was very obscure, uh, but they had just built a new vaudeville theater in 1915. It was uh, one of his first headlining gigs. You could look it up in the book. He's a very yeah. obscure comedian's name. This is really his only claim to fame. Uh, uh, but he was headlining this theater. They had just finished building it. He was feeling uh, celebratory before the show. He went out front to have a smoke, and the marquee above him gave way, the marquee that had his name on it, and buried him in rubble and killed him. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. 1915. Yeah. Yeah. Very uh, poetic. <laughs> you can draw a That's showbiz. Yeah. That's, that's fired. A, that's I'm, a Friedman I'm, strip. I'm going to leave right now and start. Waiting to happen. And and you said that the comedians, uh, like, you know, you think years later, you know, comedians doing coke and smoking right. dope. But you said they were big on morphine and opium. Yeah, those were the two most popular drugs on the vaudeville circuit. And uh, Joe Laurie Jr., who wrote two great books on the history of vaudeville in the early 50s, and he had been a comedian in the teens and 20s, and then he was on this radio show, Can You Top This?, with uh, Harry Hirschfeld and these sort of now-forgotten names. He tells the story that in order to subsidize incomes, a lot of the amateurs were drug dealers in the vaudeville circuit. And there were all these showbiz rooming houses. If you go to... Uh, old trade publications, Billboard and Variety, you'll always see these little classified ads. Stay at the such-and-such hotel in Boston just for show people. So when you came through town, this is where you stayed. And that's also where you bought your drugs. They usually had a drug dealer uh, who lived in that rooming house, a local, who would sell you morphine or opium. And uh, those were usually the richest comedians in town. You know, you didn't make that much uh, performing. So, yeah, it was very, very common. And uh, there was also – we were talking about how there were these acts – that other people ripped off that were very common at the time. Lou Kelly, the vaudeville comedian, was known for the dope fiend act in which he played a drug addict on stage to comedic effect. And I guess morphine and opium was popular enough then that people uh, recognized the qualities of such a drug addict that that became a trend. There were dope fiend acts touring vaudeville, and it was very, very common. And back then, because it's funny, like I remember when I was a kid, I would watch Abbott and Costello and the Three Stooges and a bunch of variety shows doing Niagara Falls. Slowly right. I turn inch. So I guess there were like a thousand people doing Niagara Falls. Weren't there Falls. a lot of people doing Who's On First? Yeah. yeah. I mean, these were all kind of stock routines. They were, in, in my research, less vaudeville than burlesque. Burlesque and vaudeville often these days are used as interchangeable phrases, but at the time they were completely different styles of comedy. Vaudeville was considered high class. Burlesque was considered low class. Burlesque, of course, was considered dirtier. But it was also uh, uh, the circuit and style of comedy where you did stock routines. So if two burlesque acts were doing the same routine, it was not considered stealing. It was all sort of a pool of public domain comedy. And Who's On First came out of that. And when Abbott and Costello broke in 1930 on the Kate Smith Hour on radio, 
Uh, it was controversial in the burlesque community because all these other guys had been doing the same routines or variations thereof, and they were always considered too dirty to be used on radio. So all of a sudden, Abbott and Costello become the biggest things in radio comedy and the envy of all these burlesque comics. But yeah, there were all these different versions of who's on first uh, uh, long before and uh, yeah, Wheel- Wheeler some... and Woosley do a version of it right. in a movie in 1933. This, uh, Australian comedians, I think. The Lamb Moulton sent me a clip of them doing a variation of Who's Off. Nothing yeah. to do with baseball, but basically the same routine. Back Australian from the, comedians. Yeah, from the early 30s or late 20s. Yeah, the same a... routine, but no, nothing to do with baseball. Yeah, there's a Kraft Music Hall uh, radio episode. This very obscure comedy team on it who do uh, like a, a what, which, and where routine. And do you know who actually would have written that routine? No idea. No idea. Because I think that – I but, think – um, slowly I Turned was written by Sidney Fields, I've heard. Oh. Can you confirm that? I can't confirm that, but, uh, you and know. Niagara Falls was written by Sid Fields, who used to perform it as the bum, you know, in the jails. Are all those uh, Abbott and Costello bits go back to vaudeville? I mean, the the, the, the identical twin waitresses. Yeah, everything the, you the see on the TV. Loaf of bread sh- is the, the mother. The TV show of... was basically recreating, right. you know, what they were doing in burlesque. Right. I heard a story that with Abbott and Costello... Uh, when the, you'd bring them a new, if if a writer would write something for them, they'd be scared of doing it. So the writer would make up a story saying, "Oh no, no, no! I heard this in vaudeville a right. bunch of times." Right, right. To verify that, or to make him feel comfortable that it would work for yeah. sure. Yeah, he'd say he stole it, and it's perfectly okay. It yeah, works. it's interesting. You know, Milton Berle, the reputation of being the thief of bad gags and all of that, goes back to this comedy writer named Al Bosberg, who wrote a routine for Berle in vaudeville in which he would go up on stage and brag about how he was the most original comedian in vaudeville. And then he would deliver a, a joke that was famously identified with another comedian. And it would get a big laugh because he was bragging about how original he was. And then it kind of uh, lost way and Burl started being accused of being a thief. But he wasn't a joke thief. He stole from himself and did the same jokes in the 70s he'd done in the 40s. But it was a persona that Al Bosberg wrote for him uh, pretending to be a joke thief. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I don't think a lot of people uh, know that. that It's really stuck. I I remember – Hearing about Al Bosberg a few years ago, and they said he is pretty much credited for creating the sitcom. I don't know about he that. He actually yeah. created the Jack Benny Cheap character. Yeah. Yeah. And also created the character of Rochester. You know, But uh, I guess he was maybe putting construction into like well, the radio, Jack radio, Benny Because he died young. He yeah. died young. So, yeah, he basically created the radio show, which yeah. is actually superior to the TV show, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. it might be the Jack Benny program that uh, that's in reference to. Bosberg he – died, He died young and he's pretty much forgotten. Bosberg he, had written previously for uh, Phil Baker and Ben Burney in vaudeville and they did something that was very similar to the what became the Jack Benny program template. Phil Baker – was the equivalent of Phil Harris. He was like the drunken, carousing orchestra leader in Ben Burney's uh, orchestra. And all the jokes that Al Bosberg wrote for Burney and uh, Phil Baker were 
nearly identical to the relationship between Jack Benny and Phil Harris on the radio program. That was the template. And I think I told you this uh, before. Jack Benny uh, was kind of trying to cash in or ride the coattails of the Ben Bernie Orchestra when he first started in vaudeville. He billed himself as Ben Benny so that people would get him confused with Ben Bernie. Yeah, that's that's fun. That's in the book. And they did. Uh, He got all this great – all these great bookings in major – theaters as a headliner and then would go up there and bomb because he was an amateur. Um, and eventually, uh, Ben Bernie sent a cease and desist order to Jack Benny saying, you cannot bill yourself as Ben Benny. It's too close and people are getting confused. So he changed his billing to Ben K. Benny. That also didn't help. And so then he eventually changed his name to Jack Benny. And he borrowed from Julius Tannen too, didn't he? Jack Julius Benny? Tannen, who later became a, uh, a prolific character actor, had been a vaudeville comic. Inspired by Frank Fay, uh, one of the first comedians, both Fay and Tannen, to just uh, go on stage in a tuxedo and do stand-up without any gimmicks. Uh, it is said that Jack Benny was heavily influenced by Julius Tannen, and there was a, a semi-legendary newspaper review in Jack Benny lore uh, when he was still very young that criticized Benny. They said, uh, it looks like Jack Benny has been studying Julius Tannen, but obviously not close enough. I think there's a video of Julius on YouTube, and he actually holds his hand Ooh, up to his face. Yeah. Effeminate. That's a different guy. It's, ah. a, it's a fella named uh, uh, Jackie, Jackie Whalen. He's it's very close. Late 20s, and he sort of does a gay character, and, and he does do the same hand gestures as Jack Benny. It's the, yeah, it's a, a Vitaphone short, mm. and he does his stand-up routine, and it's eerily similar yeah. to Jack Benny. Yeah. That so you see on YouTube. Yeah. But Drew... You say that Jack Benny fucked Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I heard that. I've heard that they would go to uh, nude beaches together. Jack Benny and Marilyn yes, Monroe, in Los Angeles, and she was the uh, first guest on his TV show. They, yeah. were, they were that close. Well, I know Jack Benny famously had an affair with Giselle McKenzie behind well, Mary Livingston. Yeah, band. with the violin in the bed as well. <laughs> yeah. And you, you said <laughs> both Martin and Lewis separately. Fucked Marilyn. Well, I would assume, you know, and and Mil- Milton Berle with Marilyn. <laughs> they, they say Milton too. I mean, I'm not saying she was loose. That's how Marilyn Monroe died. When <laughs> and Milton you know, and then she had. She was literally. She loose. had her affair with Joe Besser as well. Yeah, no. <laughs> they, 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 say that, they say that when Jack Benny would climax, he would hum, going. <laughs> I've heard that. I can't verify. I've heard it. I've heard that too. No. Here's a story I'd heard years ago, and you discuss it in your book, that, you know, you, I remember growing up, you'd see Bill Dana on TV a lot going, you know, hello, this is Jose Jimenez. And later on, that would be considered way too offensive. Right. But I had heard, and then you sort of confirm it in the book, that the mob, that album, like of Jose Jimenez, uh, Bill Dana had nothing to do with. Yeah, there is a comedy record uh, called Pat Harrington as Guido Panzini uh, with his friend Bill Dana. And it's got Pat Harrington only on the cover in a plaid coat. And it's on a completely different record label than all those other best-selling Bill Dana records. Bill Dana's Jose Jimenez records are all on Cap Records, K-A-P-P, who are best known for Burt Bacharach uh, albums. 
And this other one is on Roulette Records. So when I talked to Bill Dana the first time, I said, what's the story? Did you have a falling out with Cap Records? Why did you do this one uh, release? He said, it was done without my permission. It came out and I saw it in a record store one day and I was like, what the hell? I had nothing to do with this. Uh, uh, Morris Levy, a famous uh, Jewish mobster who ran Birdland, the jazz club, uh, also ran Roulette Records. The story is that one day... A guy from uh, uh, the Musicians Union or ASCAP came into uh, Birdland and said, you owe this much in royalties for you know your band doing these songs. And Mo Levy said, what? This is my club. I don't owe you any money. He said, no, this is the law. This is how music publishing rights work. And a light bulb went off uh, above his head and Levy was like, you mean they just pay you money? No matter what. So he got into the music publishing uh, uh, business, uh, claimed co-writing credit on Silent Night <laughs> when he released a Christmas album. And Mo Levy became a very uh, successful in this way. So when comedy records became a craze and Bill Dana was a regular on the Steve Allen show, the Sunday night variety program, they just recorded – Bill Dana's act right off of the television with a reel-to-reel and then released it as the latest Bill Dana LP. And when Bill Dana objected to it, he started getting threatened. He'd get phone calls at night telling him to lay off, like, it's none of your business. This is good promotion for you. It's also uh, good that you leave it alone if you know what's good for you. And then Bill Dana heard, yeah, you don't really fuck with roulette records. It's it's you know, the mob and they will hurt you. And he would notoriously, Mo Levy had uh, uh, people who he would send to New Jersey to break the knees of bootleggers who were like releasing rock and roll records that Roulette had uh, released as bootleg. So uh, Bill Dana never saw a penny from that record, but you can still find it in thrift stores to this day. So if it clearly sold very, very well. Yeah. Bill Dana's around. We should get him on the show. He, tell his he version wrote the of All in the Family episode with Sammy That's Davis right. Jr. That's right. He did. Amazing career. That's right. And he produced that Joey Foreman album with uh, the Maharishi Yoga. Joey Foreman Yoga. is a guy who's pretty much forgotten, and I knew him as Harry Who on Get Smart. Well, apparently People that don't talk record, about him. that record, I can't remember the label. It was, it was Bill Dana presents Joey Foreman as yeah. the Maharishi Yogi, I guess. So the Beatles were, were, were really hot with the Maharishi thing, and they put that record into production when it was still like a big thing. Between the time of them going to production and that record coming out, the Maharishi had been discredited as like a fraud who was living high on the hog and not spiritual Se- at sexy all. Sexy Sadie. And the Beatles had kind of disowned yeah. him. So that record came out and just laid a giant wow. egg. It was a huge Surprising. thud. So, have, you, have you ever heard it? Does it hold up in any kind I of I have way? it and it doesn't hold up because Joey Foreman – like Buddy Hackett's Chinese waiter, his whole shtick was doing these kind of racist accents. <laughs> Harry Who on, on Get, Get Smart. Smart. Yeah. Harry Who, you remember? Yeah, Joey of Foreman. And, and it's funny Love that him. Drew brings it up, but it is. It's like Sexy Sadie uh, had to do with the Maharishi. You know, yeah. you'll get yours yet. Yeah. Yeah. You right. made a fool of everyone. Right. Dear right. Prudence was based on well, Mia, this is Mia Mia Prudence Farrow. Yeah. Well, there's a whole genre also of Beatles uh, parody comedy records. There's a Philadelphia Jewish comedy team called Fisher and Marks who put out an LP called It's a Cuckoo Beatles World. <laughs> And they sing a song on it where they like uh, uh, they increase the speed of the tape so it's a high pitched voice and they sing Ringo Ringo Little Star and they come out in if you look at the cover it's hilarious because the two Jewiest looking guys ever wow. putting on what they think are Beetle wigs 
but they're just these terrible askew like women's wigs and there Perfect. are tuxedos on the cover uh, Swan Records out of Philadelphia put out this horrible I love that first episode when the Beatles arrive in America not for the Beatles on Ed Sullivan yeah. but for you know Soupy Sales I think and Frank Gorshin Marty and, Allen well, yeah, Marty the, Brill and, uh, uh, oh, uh, Charlie Brill Charlie yeah, Brill yeah then they start showing up in every yeah, sitcom and then the Beatles ruin it by you know performing and then they get back to the <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I don't know that episode with Frank Gorshin the first Beatles episode I think yeah. Uh, yeah. Frank Corshin, yeah. Beatles aside, Frank Corshin does a brilliant performance on that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Burt Lancaster, sure Kirk Douglas, everything you'd expect, but he's on fire. But he, Everybody he, remembers the Beatles, but not yeah. Frank Corshin. And Charlie Brill and Mitzi McCall. Well, they they and, didn't and, do so great. Right. That's kind and of young okay. Davy Jones. Yeah, right. that's right. And, and right. I right. think when Alan and Rossi came out, uh, uh, Rossi uh, – no, uh, Marty Allen was introduced as uh, – as uh, Ringo's uh, – Paul Ringo's McCartney's mother. son. Ringo's sister. Yeah. Right. Yeah, something <laughs> like these great photos of John Lennon joke. and Marty Allen, like two worlds colliding <laughs> when they were we guesting. Asked him, we had him on the show. We asked him about uh, it. You had well, John Lennon re- on the show? No. Well, yeah. Yeah, Marty. But he claims they were buddies. I love those photos. Like John's looking at them like he probably never heard of them t- you know, the day before. Right. Yeah, of Marty course. Allen always says, my my dear friend yeah, John Lennon. That's what Lennon. I said. <laughs> His buddy. It's like Joe well, Franklin you know, became I, a dear friend to everybody. I interviewed Steve Ross and Maria Allen separately and I talked to Steve Rossi first and I'm obsessed with this movie The Last of the Secret Agents oh, yeah. which oh, yeah. was their attempt to be Abbott and Costello they had a contract for a multi-film contract yeah. with Paramount they only ever made one because it was so horrible but it was directed by Bud Abbott's uh, nephew Norman Abbott, Norman Abbott who yeah. also directed many of the Jack Benny mm. program Nancy Sinatra did the opening uh, credits theme music it's a secret agent you know a spy spoof and uh, it's it's not as bad as I was led to believe when I finally saw it. I was expecting it to be much worse, but it's not good either. Who is the? Who is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say when I asked Steve Rossi about it, I said this movie, The Last of the Secret Agents. He went. He goes, Oh God. I go, well, what did you think? He goes, it was terrible. It wasn't funny. They wouldn't let us use our own material. They assigned some writer to us. It, it was a disaster. It's horrible. I never want to see it again. And then I, uh, I interviewed Marty Allen and I said, so The Last of the Secret Agents is uh, notorious for being a terrible movie. He goes, oh, no, it's very funny. It's very, very funny. If they, if they would reissue it, people would call it a comedy classic. I, it was I like believe exact, Marty. Yeah. Yeah. What was the thing you sent me? Was it Buttman and Rubin? Oh, that the, was the, a horrible record they made. Which <laughs> written, Rossi, written by Bob Kane. Written Bob Kane. Bob Kane you know, yeah. It's possibly the best thing Bob Kane ever did. It's one of the most horrendous things. You'll, but Bob Kane also created Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse yes, and a character named Batman. But he yeah. wrote this album for yeah. Martin. It's, it's horrible. horrible. It's about 11 minutes. Yeah. And it's basically Marty Allen saying, Holy bagels, Batman. <laughs> Bet- oh. His word is Batman. It's Batman, Jewish, yeah. but there's Bet- no jokes. Batman there's no Ruben. humor. But holy bagels, Batman. Where's the chopped liver? That's the, basically, <laughs> yeah. it's 11 minutes, the whole album. <laughs> and uh, I heard horrible. for years horrible. after uh, Alan and Rossi split up, Rossi was like like a spurned lover who would show up at Marty Allen shows, I guess, hoping to get back together. Well, well, he black, had so he many other – yeah, too. he had so many different comedy teams after that. He, it was a guy named Bernie Allen, very obscure comedian, yeah. and they were billing themselves as Allen Ooh. and Rossi. But it was Bernie Allen and Steve Rossi. And then Slappy White and Steve Rossi teamed up and did a comedy team. They put out a comedy record for Roulette Records. Was Morris that Black Levy. and White? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I, I remember seeing them on TV and Steve Rossi would go, 
hello, I'm Rossi. And Slippy White would go, and I'm white. Right. And that was. <laughs> you it, saw Rossi and White yes. on TV? What show? And Mike Douglas, maybe? Wow. Maybe. But, uh-huh. and, and the jokes fell. You know who else Steve Rossi teamed up with after he broke up with Marty Allen and did a team with? Joey Ross. They briefly did mm. Ross and Rossi, and they did an Ed Sullivan show. And when I, again, when I interviewed Steve Rossi, I go – because I was writing an article about Joey Ross at the time called King of Slobs. And I said, <laughs> uh, Steve, uh, you teamed up with uh, Joey Ross for a while. He goes, yeah. I go, how long did that last? He goes, oh, a few years. We did about 10 Sullivan shots. I'm sitting in front of my laptop on the phone with him at the time. I'm like, well, it says here you guys were together for a week. <laughs> And did one Sullivan, but I know. didn't realize Slappy White was a team had teamed up with Red Fox at one point until I read your book. That's kind of how they got their star. Yeah, they were red and white, and I think Johnny Otis, who's a legendary rhythm and blues disc jockey in Los Angeles, who discovered a lot of big names, he put them together. He used to have Red Fox come into his rhythm and blues radio show and just talk and rap on air, and he thought they would hit it off. So. He teamed them. Dinah uh, Washington hired them as her opening act in presentation houses on the black uh, theater circuit in America. They played Philadelphia. They played uh, New York. And uh, one of their last gigs was playing the Old Palace Theater in New York, I guess around 1950 for a white audience. And they bombed. And in my research, I found this review where it said uh, 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 Slappy White and Red Fox's jokes about marijuana and prostitution don't fly with this crowd. Did you know that? Red and White? Did you know they were a team? Slappy used to appear on on Sanford and Son. He'd show up on that occasion. And Stymie and all these guys that Red Fox worked with in the old days. Red Fox gave many uh, black comedians who were in their 60s and 70s. Second shot. No, yeah. a first shot. Their uh, television debuts because right. they ne- they were black. They couldn't get on TV. Well, in the, the 50s one who was Aunt Esther, right? Was Lawanda Page. Lawanda yeah. Page had been a stripper, kind of a stripper, electric. She used to do stuff with the uh, electricity. If you remember, I didn't know that. Yeah, no. there's photos of her. Maybe a video on YouTube of her. Like she would be like it was an act where she she would like plug herself in somehow, and her whole uh, outfit. Would, she'd wear a bikini. It's disturbing there. to think about. <laughs> We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. There is a block in Los Angeles around La Brea and Willoughby where Red Fox used to have his office building in the 70s. And there's construction all around it right now. So I think maybe they're going to dig this up soon. But on the sidewalk... Uh, when Red Fox christened that building, he had all his old buddies come and put their hands and signatures in cement. Mm-hmm. So it's LaWanda Page, Skillet and Leroy, uh, um, uh, Tony King, who was a black actor. And they all say, thanks, Red. Thanks for the shot. Thanks for wow. the chance. Uh, the Four Step Brothers, their signatures are in the cement. Just around this construction yard. It's Which not- one was Grady? Oh, Whitman Mayo. He wasn't Whitman really Mayo. an old comic. He was actually a legitimate actor. And he was young, too. He was like in his 40s. Who played right. Bubba? Oh. Don Bexley was Don Bubba, and Don he Bexley. put out records on Duto, which was the same label Red Fox started with in the 50s. Yeah, I had heard a story. Red Fox at one point was taking control of uh, Sanford and Son. He said, I-, I just want only the whole crew has to be black, black writers, right. black producers. And they did it. And then the show started, became a total mess. Right. And then at one point, Red Fox just said, 
Okay, bring me my juice back. <laughs> wow. Good for him. Bernie Orenstein and Saul Turtletop. Oh, yes. Cliff, Cliff mentioned um, Joey Ross, and I, there was something I, I wanted to ask you. There's supposedly Joey Ross teamed up with Maurice Scottsfield and went on Ed Sullivan right. in the late 50s, and they bombed, and right. everybody mocked them when they went back on the set of Bilko. I've never seen that. Does that exist anywhere? I'd love to see that. Yeah, I don't know if it does. All of the Sullivan shows do exist. Mm. And if you contact uh, Sofa Entertainment and they have a very uh, a stranglehold on the copyright, you know, they'll charge you $1,000 if you want a glimpse of these episodes. Have you seen it? Episodes. I've never seen it. Yeah. Phil Silvers talks about it in his early 70s autobiography. And uh, I think if you look at the, the listings of uh, the Ed Sullivan show over the years, they have it on their official website. I think it is listed there that they did do a routine. I've never I'd seen it. I would love to see love those to two see guys perform too. together. Yeah. We talked about Joey Ross last night. We're we recording did. this the night, just to tell our listeners, we're recording this the night after we did the uh, – I think the, that was the filthiest part. The Jewish the, comedy yeah. panel. I could see Eddie. I could see Eddie's face tightening. This was we the Jewish comedy show. panel because I have a, the a right. museum of my Jews – the Jewzee, comedy Jewseum is now – now on display right. so we'll plug for it for the next two months right yeah because there was talk well i i heard nat hyken hated joey ross right he, and right. he discovered him of yeah course. he discovered him and joey ross thought he was like chaplain yeah well, maurice gosfield too it's interesting hyken used all these guys that were kind of slovenly they were the same off stage as on. So you would, if you didn't know better, you'd think these guys were just great comic actors, great at playing bums and lowlifes and degenerate gamblers. But in real life, they were bums and lowlifes and degenerate gamblers. <laughs> and Hyken, brilliant as he was, Hyken previously, before he created Bilko, had produced the Martha Ray show and started using Rocky Graziano as the comic foil with Martha Ray. And he got huge laughs because he couldn't read the cue cards properly. He worked with LaMotta, too. And some Jake LaMotta yeah. was in yeah, Car 54. He loved the old boxers. He loved the pugs. Punch-drunk boxers. Right. Mm-hmm. He liked and ugly faces like you did. do. And yeah. Nat Hyken, yeah, Nat Hyken. Oh, we love, we all love Nat Hyken. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Yeah, Nat Hyken, he liked funny-looking people. You know, yeah. he could have never produced friends. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't care how they even spoke. Well, he, would use, yeah. he would use B.S. Pulley and not have him speak in certain episodes of Car 54. Right. B.S. You know, Pulley is in Nat Hyken's final project. I'm sure you've talked about it on this show, The Love God. We haven't talked about starring it. Starring Don Knotts sure as a choreographer. Yes. We know it. Which I, is one fact, of the, un, I think, an underrated film. It also actually. broke Nat's high, uh, heart that he didn't get the cast he wanted, and, and he died soon after making that What film. was the cast that he, he wanted? wanted Dick Van Van Dyke, Walter Matthau, and Jane Fonda. And he got uh, Don Knotts, uh, Anne Francis, and Edmund O'Brien. That would kill anyone. still a good cast. (laughs) It's still a pretty good cast. And the film is interesting, of course. Uh, B.S. Pulley is in it. James Gregory of Barney Miller's fame is in it as well. And he's the uh, prosecuting attorney who points at Don Knotts. It's a really funny scene. James Gregory is pointing at Don Knotts in court and says, look at this degenerate! Look at this! This is the face of a pornographer! This is the face of the degradation of the United States, ladies and gentlemen! And it's just Don Knotts wincing with every word and it's just... It's, it's a, and, and I it's, heard like with Don Knotts and the love bug or... The love, love, God. love God. God, I mean. That was his attempt to try to be relevant in the 60s. Right. 
Well, it's very 60s. There's a scene, a montage of him trying on different like Nehru suits, and they're playing this song composed by Vic Mizzy called Mr. Uh, Mr. Peacock. It's uh, For me, it's a camp classic. It's I love to love, love yeah. God. It was a huge flop, and it basically derailed Don Knotts' movie career. He went back to TV you know, to do his variety show. Yeah, and he went and did uh, a bunch of Disney movies. I mean, Don Knotts was always really just doing children's movies. Mr. Limpet, The Reluctant oh, yeah. Astronaut, right. all those are really for kids. Shakiest gun in the West. Yeah. yeah, he had his moment as a movie star, and like Dick Van Dyke, it kind of fizzled out, and that and, was... And what know. was that one he did where he's a detective with Tim Conway? Oh, no, they did a Private Eyes. That was, oh, yeah. later. that was later. Those yeah. ones I don't care for yeah. that much. But, uh, back to Nat Hiken, he, everybody thinks of Milton Berle's TV show is like, you know, the first great television show, the biggest hit. He was Mr. Tuesday Night. But the radio show that Nat Hiken actually wrote and directed in 1947 before Milton went over to TV was far superior to the TV show. It also had Arnold Stang, but it was, uh, you can listen to it. It's, uh, you know, it's there's, there's a running gag in the Milton Berle radio show that's really fun. Funny. Uh, it was taped in front of a live studio audience, and this bit does not really get laughs because it's just kind of weird, but it's definitely Nat Hiken. I don't know who the actor is that plays this woman, but it's a man playing a woman. And I don't remember her name. We'll just call her Mrs. Smith. But there's a scene where uh, Mrs. Smith shows up at a party that Milton Berle is, is throwing, and, uh, oh, uh, Mrs. Smith, it's so nice to see you. Oh, yes. Are, are you having a good time? Oh, yes. Would you like some punch? Oh, yes. And this bit goes on for like sixty seconds. I remember that. Yeah, it's really, really it's, funny. It's, oh, if you hate, even if you hate Milton Berle, it's like the possibly the best thing he ever did. You know, now we talk about Milton Berle for one, for only one reason. But that that show, the rate, <laughs> the rate, and, and we talked at length about yeah, it last thing. night. And I'm sure we'll get to it. <laughs> the radio show was We're his best that. work. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I, because we were talking about these Beatles uh, takeoff records. And I'm sure we all remember those awful records that would come out years ago where it would be like, Martians have landed right. on the Earth. Dickie Goodman. Yeah. 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 Mr. Jaws. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Goodman. So they'd go, hey, would uh, the man from Mars say anything? She loves you. Yeah. And yeah. They, oh, they, would, they would cut that, in. Yeah, that genre has a name. Line. I forget. Does that still exists. Break no. in records or cut in records. Well, they, you'll sometimes you'll 70s. see somebody. You'll sometimes you'll see somebody on YouTube do something similar, but I don't think it's based on that. But it really is kind of. Uh, yeah. You know, Dickie Goodman got the Dickie credit Goodman. for creating those. Yeah, yeah. Dickie Goodman. Mr. Jaws was the Did big one. Did any of them hold up? I mean, no. no. Because there were so no. many finally. No. They were so, so unhip, it was like unfunny. Dickie Goodman and, and Kermit Schaefer were like, had their own category of like inventing something. Kermit Schaefer did the blooper records. Pardon my bloopers, yeah. And yeah. Will Jordan, the impressionist, may be a future guest of your show. We hope so. He's a few uh, blocks from here. He told me that those Kermit Schaefer blooper records – uh, for the most part, are fabricated. They would play outtakes from radio shows where somebody like uh, like the famous Jack Benny, instead of saying uh, Drew Pearson, Don Wilson says Pooh Drearson and gets a big laugh. So these records would ha- be compilations of those bloopers. But Will Jordan told me that they were actually all recreations and some of them were made up, like the famous story about the children's host. The Uncle Don. Yeah, that'll hold those SOBs. Yeah. Will Jordan told oh, me so that, that he was that hired – 
to recreate uh, all of those because he was a mimic. And when you listen to him, none of them are real outtakes. They just... sounded suspect to me. Yeah. And yeah. I had them when I was a kid. And then I would listen to them twice. I said, wait a minute. This doesn't really, this doesn't really click. So the Uncle Don thing never happened or it was just recreated? Well, you know, Joe Franklin swore it never happened and uh-huh. it ruined – Joe Franklin loved Uncle Don. He was a kiddie show host who said uh-huh. that ought to hold the little bastards. Right. It was famous. And they, and they recorded it. Joe Franklin says it never happened but it ruined his career and broke his heart. You know, so now I don't know what to think. I'd like to think it happens. But so, it, it does appear on one of those Kermit Schaefer Pardon My Blooper LPs. Yeah, but it sounds like so it, it may have been created up. by that. So, yeah. so how did they create that story if he never said it? I think he, it, it – well, it did ruin his career. So I don't think he said yeah, that. I think he I said something. Like, like Soupy Sales said something that got him, fi- that that got him suspended. The, send me uh, – I don't think parents, yeah, little I don't think Uncle Don actually said that or that ought to hold the little bastards. I say, I think he said that ought to hold the little cocksuckers. <laughs> and somehow it got it got turned into little bastards and ruined his career. <laughs> Let's uh you were just speaking about funny names on the Benny show. Did where did Rodney Dangerfield come from? Because the name is I'm jumping forward yeah. here, but we're jumping all around Well, in the interest of time. It's interesting because Robert Klein uh, talks about how Rodney – Who we were with last night. Yeah, right the, he, he says that Rodney told him that he flipped through the Manhattan telephone directory at random and picked the name Dangerfield. But there are two episodes of the Jack Benny program on radio in the late 40s that use the name Rodney Dangerfield. And if you listen to that show, there were these recurring characters, two female telephone operators. Jack Benny would pick up the phone and say, oh, hello, operator. Could you get me uh, Murray Hill 52600? And then it would cut to the sound of the two operators going, oh, it's him again, Doris, Mr. Benny. Well, what are you doing after work, Helen? Oh, I'm going to go see a new movie with my favorite matinee idol. Who's that? Rodney Dangerfield. And it got a big laugh because it was this weird name. That joke appears in two different radio episodes in the late 40s. So Coincidence? Um, well, I'd been told that Rodney got his new name. He had been known as Jack Roy. He was born Jacob Cohen changed it to Rodney Dangerfield around 62, uh, that his manager, this guy Roy Duke, had suggested the name Rodney Dangerfield. Will Jordan's manager, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 But he had to change his name. For you, he, he had this to, is in my book. Uh, right. The is, reason he changed his story. name. And this story is not in Rodney Dangerfield's memoir. But when I researched, I found this incredible uh, uh, newspaper article from a Long Island uh, paper in the mid-50s. People who are really into comedy kind of know the story that Jack Roy was a failed comedian. So he got into the aluminum siding business. Then got out of it, got back into comedy, changed his name to Rodney Dangerfield. And if you read Rodney's memoir, he says, I made a good living selling aluminum siding, but I wasn't living. So I had to get back into showbiz. But the reality is he was managing this company called Pioneer Construction that did aluminum siding and home repair uh, in New Jersey, in Long Island, Rhode Island, all, all these little areas. And he was the subject of an FBI sting operation because it was a scheme. It was a high-pressure uh, – if you ever see the Barry Levinson yeah, movie Tin, Tin, Man. Man, Tin Man, he was one of those guys pressuring and, and, and exploiting widows who had lost children in war saying, I served with your son in, in Korea and now thanks to the GI Bill, I can get you excellent discounts on home repair and aluminum siding. If you would just sign right here, we can give you a great deal. The reality is he was charging 10 times what the work was worth or sometimes not doing doing the work at all and taking the money. So 
his whole company was monitored by the FBI for a year. And then they broke into his house at five in the morning and arrested him. And there's a newspaper story that says Jacob Did you know Cohen. This story? No. Yeah. Jacob Cohen, better known as Jack Roy, was arrested in an early dawn raid. And I did ask that of uh, Robert Klein. Like, have you heard the story? He goes, yeah, Rodney was kind of cloak and dagger about it. He did mention it, but he didn't get into the specifics and he didn't serve jail time. But he had this now stigma about him under the name Jack Roy. So there's a theory uh, that is mine that he changed his name to Rodney Dangerfield to erase the stigma of this uh, this FBI uh, arrest. It's a good theory. And tell us about – we're repeating this, and I'm not sure we've told this on the show, but we did tell it last night, uh, the, the the death of – the Friars Club death of – Oh, of Albert Brooks's father? Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting. Again, talking about uh, um, radio and stuff like that, Albert Brooks's father, also the father of Bob Einstein, who is best known as Marty Funkhauser on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Super Dave Osborne, Bob Einstein, Albert Brooks, their father – was a comedian named Harry Einstein. He was from Boston. He was a furniture salesman who did comedy on the side as a lark. And he did something that was kind of common back then. Al Kelly would do this too, where he'd go up on stage, be introduced as like a foreign dignitary and and be introduced very seriously, representing something. And over the course of his speech, it would be revealed that he was an idiot saying preposterous things or talking in double talk and start to get laughs. And Eddie Cantor came through Boston uh, uh, one week uh, on a testimonial dinner or Israel Bonds dinner, something like that. And they introduced Harry Einstein as a Greek dignitary. And the thing that he said, he pointed at Eddie Cantor and said, I can't believe that these people would laugh at this unfunny man. You Americans are so stupid, so insipid. Anything makes you laugh. Just because he has big banjo eyes, you think that's funny? In my country, this man wouldn't be good enough to shine our shoes. You know, and just insulting him to his face. And Cantor was shocked because everybody had been falling all over him and praising him. And all the locals knew uh, Harry Einstein was a put-on artist. So they started laughing. And then finally, when Harry Einstein looked at Cantor, he couldn't keep the deadpan because he looked so horrified that it was funny. And he cracked up. They realized it was a joke. So Eddie Cantor signed Albert Brooks's father, Harry Einstein, for his show to be a bit of a sidekick. And he created this character named Parkia Carcass, which was sort of uh, uh, not really a Greek dialect comedian, but sort of the name uh, uh, intimated that. But when you heard him, it wasn't really a Greek accent. But anyways, he was a sidekick on the Eddie Cantor program in the 30s on the Al Jolson radio program with Martha Ray in the 40s. He had his own radio show on the Mutual Network called Meet Me at Parkies that was kind of juvenile. But in the late 40s, he had chronic back pain and he went into a doctor's office to have it looked at. They performed surgery on his spine, but they fucked it up and paralyzed him in the process. I should also note that in the late 30s, Harry Einstein did a bunch of B-movies for RKO, like New Faces of 1937, that also featured Milton Berle. Oh, I didn't see And, didn't uh, and this woman, Telma Leeds. Joe, and Joe Penner. Joe oh, Joe Penner, Penner right. At one point, duck. they wanted to make Joe Penner and Parky Carcass a comedy team, which did not succeed because nobody really liked either of them that much. <laughs> You remember Joe Penner Gilbert? Want to buy a, a duck. duck. Yeah. yeah. But New Faces of 1937, one of the actresses in it was Telma Leeds, and Harry Einstein married her, and that is the mother of Albert Brooks and Bob Einstein. So the, the, the parents are in that movie, New Faces of, of 1937. Okay. And yeah, and, and Harriet Nelson was also in that. Harriet Nelson, that's right, and she sings a great song. Harriet and, Hilliard. Yeah, yeah. And you said, I mean, uh, according to the book, uh, Eddie Cantor had a, had a tragic childhood. 
Yeah, I can't remember exactly the details, but both of his parents were gone by the age of 10. One died, and maybe the, maybe the father was Yeah, his was just... mother died when he was like a uh, little kid. Yeah, yeah. And then his father just left. Yeah, Cantor has sort of that classic Lower East Side Jewish uh, uh, upbringing story, you know. Like Jessel, and they were both boyhood friends, too. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And they both were, were children in vaudeville, like in a Gus Edwards troupe. There's photos know? of them, yeah, as children together. Yeah, as, kind of. Boys. Kind of incredible, and uh, and Cantor was considered by his writers in the 30s as not having any talent. Like he would oversell every joke, and the thing was, he was so used to vaudeville and Ziegfeld Follies Broadway, where he had to project to the balcony. When radio came in, he didn't adjust. So uh, you know, you know, the actress would come in on the radio show and say, "Hey, Eddie, I heard you went to the dance. What's that, Marjorie? You say I went to the dance on Thursday?" No, Joe Franklin loved him. Uh, I think he's the only Bob Greenberg or Joe Franklin. Everybody yeah. else, nobody yeah. can stand. I've Eddie never Cantor. heard anybody else no, say that he was hard funny. To, he's hard to deal with. Now, do do we all remember the Eddie Cantor story? Right. Yes. Starring Keith Brazell. Yes, Keith K E E. F-E, or strange name, Keith Brazell. This is an insane story, the story of Keith Brazell, because the Jolson, <laughs> the Jolson story was such a <laughs> we hit. Didn't, we didn't finish Parking we'll Carcass. Get to <laughs> Carcass. We'll get to Parking Carcass. <laughs> Go ahead. The Jolson story was such a profitable hit for Columbia. They made the sequel, Jolson Sings Again. Yes. Warner Brothers wanted to cash in on this biop, vaudevillian biopic craze, so they were like, we'll do the Eddie Cantor story. And it was a project that was in turnaround for years. They just couldn't get it made. Uh, uh, Saul Sachs was one of the producers. By 54, the craze had passed, but now they were putting it into production. Eddie Cantor eventually put up his own money to get it made, the Eddie Cantor story. And they cast this saloon singer, Keith Brazell, and Warner Brothers hyped it. An exciting new discovery, Keith Brazell. Not since the Jolson story has there been such a film. And so Keith Brazell started to believe his own hype. Yes, I'm the next big thing. I'm a huge star. Started acting like a huge star. The movie comes out. It lays an egg. It's the biggest bomb. Warner Brothers lost a lot of money. And Keith Brazell didn't get another starring role for years, but his ego remained the same as if it had been a big hit. So he started playing Las Vegas and connecting with mobsters who kind of kept him afloat and kind of stroked his ego. Now, if you flash or fast forward ahead to the early 60s when Jim Aubrey was the head of CBS television, uh, he was known for being kind of an abusive guy towards uh, uh, women. And Jim Aubrey was the guy who greenlit Gilligan's Island and all those early 60s sitcoms. He was at a Hollywood party. He got into a fight with a woman, threw her down a staircase, and she broke her arm. Turns out the woman was a mobster's mole, and a hit was put on the head of Jim Aubrey, the president of CBS television programming. The only person he was friends with that he knew who had mob connections was Keith Brazell. <laughs> So he phoned him and said, listen, uh, I don't know if you heard. And Keith Bazell says, yeah, I heard. Everybody's talking about it. They're going to kill you. And he said, well, well, is there anything you could do to help to intervene? He goes, yeah, I can maybe get it called off. I don't know. I'll make some phone calls. So Keith Bazell did. He got the hit called off. And Jim Aubrey, the head of CBS television, lives to see another day. But now he owes Keith Bazell a favor. Keith Bazell called up Jim Aubrey. He said, you know, uh, I saved your life there. And he goes, yes, I'm so grateful. Anything I can do for you, you just tell me. He goes, well, I'd really like to have my own primetime series on CBS. And Jim Aubrey said, okay, you got it. And Keith Brazell said, no, you know what? I'd like to have three primetime series on CBS. And Jim Aubrey said, okay. 
So that fall, three series premiered on CBS without any input from the network or the board of directors. The Baileys of Balboa, starring uh, uh, Paul Ford from oh, the yeah. Bilko Show. Uh, Hermione Gingold Gingham, is in that Sounds maybe? right. Yeah. The Kara Williams Show, starring a forgotten woman who's still alive named Kara Williams. Yeah. And a drama, an hour-long drama called The Reporter. Keith Brazell created a production company <laughs> that would keep wow. all profits. And all three of these series went on the air. All were maligned. Critics were aghassing. What's going on at CBS? The board of directors was aghast. And they cornered Jim Aubrey in the next uh, meeting. And they said, what? What the fuck happened here? How did this happen? Why did this happen? And he couldn't tell them. And so eventually he was ousted from CBS. Mob favor. Cliff, is Mob that payback. In your, is that in your book? That's not in my book so at all. So that'll be in the sequel? You can find that. I wrote, I wrote that article uh, good stuff. Yeah. online that what, people could buy. But I remember in the Eddie Cantor story, they were showing that Eddie Cantor was friends with Jimmy Durante. And they have this guy come into his apartment with like the phoniest looking rubber nose <laughs> and go, hey, uh, Eddie, hot cha-cha. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've never seen I – have, I haven't seen that film for maybe 50 years. But doesn't the real Eddie Cantor show up at the very yes. end? At the very yes. end, they're in a screening room, uh, Eddie Cantor and his wife, and, and the wife goes – The real wife? Yeah. Uh, I Ida? guess – Yeah. Ida. And she goes, uh, so, Eddie – uh, how are you feeling? And he goes, I've never felt better in my life. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Eddie, Eddie Cantor was the first person to host the uh, Colgate Comedy Hour when it premiered. He was the very first host. Uh, the second hosts were Martin and Lewis. Mm. The third was uh, Fred Allen. Everybody talks about how Fred Allen bombed on TV, but – uh, that was one of his first TV appearances. He had to follow Martin and Lewis, so he just looked tired and, and slow. It, one, of those, one of those episodes uh, from the Colgate Comedy Hour actually has Abe Vigoda's first TV That's appearance. That's right. He plays a, a cab driver. Cab driver. Oh, yeah. Like 1952. That's right. Is he driving Eddie Cantor or Jimmy Durante in that scene? I don't remember. It's like, and he looks like Abe Vigoda, even though he's like in his yeah. late 20s. Oh, yeah. he, he, he was still looks born like, 90 years Yeah, he ago. looks like he's about 75. He's like 29, I think. Yeah. And what 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 uh, another thing is like Martin and Lewis I mean from everything they say about them it was like a religious experience watching them Yeah there's footage on YouTube of their Copacabana act I think it's 1954 uh, there's just a stationary film camera was propped up at the end and people walk in front of it and waiters and stuff. But you can see the magic there, why they were so popular. Uh, for a lot of people who don't get Jerry Lewis or Martin and Lewis, the movies don't do it for you. And even the Colgate Comedy Hour. But to see that footage of them in a nightclub, which is what made them famous, it starts to make sense. Because we all know comedians who you got to see them live to appreciate them. You see them on TV and the magic is gone. Shecky Green is the same thing. Shecky Green's whole reputation uh, has been maligned over the years. His name is just associated with a hack comedian because he didn't translate to TV. He was a nightclub comic who needed two hours to go crazy and get worked up and climb the curtain and whatever. Uh, so Martin and Lewis, I really think, again – uh, they're they're creatures of the nightclub, and to see them in the Copacabana and Jerry Lewis running through the audience, breaking things, people are just going crazy. It's Beatlemania. Mm-hmm. You know? when, when Cliff was working on the book, um, I was in, you know I've been in touch with Jerry Lewis. You know Jerry Lewis, yeah. but I I've been uh, I asked Jerry. I said Jerry, my friend Cliff, Cliff Nestorhoff is writing this book about the definitive book on 20th century comedy. He'd like to talk to you, and I he said, what's his name? 
Cliff Nestorhoff. He he just couldn't get he couldn't get his hand he couldn't get his mouth around that name. Cliff Nestorhoff. Cliff Nestorhoff. I said, yeah, you know, he'd love to talk to you about you know because you know you're basically the most famous comedian of the 20th century, and you got to you know when you're talking to Jerry, you got to build you know you got to build up. Got to blow him a little bit. I don't know if he ever wound up. Well, I talked to I phoned him shortly after that conversation. I said, and he answered the phone. And I said, uh, hi, Jerry. Uh, this is Cliff Nestroff, a friend of Drew Friedman's. Yeah. And I said, uh, he's, he think mentioned that he was that I was going to call. <laughs> yeah, he did. He mentioned you'd call. <laughs> and I said, well, I was wondering if we could set up a, a time for a phone interview. No, I never do interviews. I said, well, d- Drew just mentioned. He goes, yeah. Like he wouldn't give me anything. Oh. It was a very awkward experience. But I, you know, you I, whenever know what I, to I, I, of course, I had my recorder uh, going, so I have at least the audio of him yelling and, at me like that. I also, uh, Mort Saul, you're in good company. I, Mort Saul, I didn't get to interview for the book, but Mort Saul, I, I phoned, and it's funny because a lot of these guys have cell phones now. But they're not necessarily that good with them. So Mort Saul, <laughs> I love old people on on online. Yeah, Mort all caps. Mort yeah. Saul, uh, that's uh, me. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, your wife's pointing at you. From, yeah, from the couch. Yeah. Mort Mort Saul, I called and he and he and I said I would like to set up a phone interview, talk about your career. He goes, uh, talk to my assistant. I'll try to set something up. And then he went to hang up his phone. <laughs> that's pretty good. And he didn't properly hang up his phone, so I could hear him. I throughout do his day, and Mort Saul is in like a bagel shop. He goes, "Yeah, I'll have poppy seed." <laughs> did you did you did you see the Tonys last night? <laughs> oh God, that Neil Patrick Harris is sure something, isn't he? And I'm, I'm listening to Mort Saul's day, That's so great. I have did that. You record that. Record. Yes, That's I have you got to tell the conversation with Will Jordan, which you told last night. Oh, the yeah, this is beautiful. Will Jordan is hard of hearing. He's almost ninety years old, and. Uh, he knew everybody in his show business. He's a great storyteller. But like I say, he's, he's hard of hearing. So I said, Will, you're one of the only living people who can really tell me about this. I wanted to talk about one of the most famous dicks in the history of show business, and that's Burl Schlong. What can you tell me about Burl Schlong? And Will Jordan said, oh, uh, wonderful, wonderful performer. <laughs> I go, a wonderful performer, Burl Schlong? <laughs> yes, you know, the thing about Dick Sean. <laughs> no, Burl Schlong. Yes, Dick Sean, yes. No. That's great. And, you know, and getting back to Martin and Lewis, their movies were so mediocre. Yeah. I mean, they were big hits, I, monsters. I, I contend that the, 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 that the Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo meet Bella Lugosi <laughs> yeah. is actually better than any the, Martin oh, and yeah. Lewis films. Scared stiff. I'll g- give you the weirdest yeah. Duke Mitchell trivia, and I'm sure all the listeners know Sammy Petrillo and, and Duke Mitchell. And Bella the, Lugosi the kids go Guru. crazy for yeah, the so Sammy Petrillo <laughs> story. This is a weird kind of comedy uh, connection. Before Sammy Shore uh, got the lease for the old Ciro's to turn it into... Uh, 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 the comedy store. The last person who had that lease was Duke Mitchell. Oh, and it's it was, in the book. Yeah, it was like called Duke Mitchell's Living Room, and you would go there and watch Duke Mitchell. He was the only yeah. performer every yeah. night of the week, and he would sing there at, at, at what became the comedy store right before it turned into that. And Cliff now, should, I'm oh. sorry. Cliff should finish the Park Your Carcass story. Let him finish the oh, Park oh, Your Carcass yes, story because yes. we're winding that, down. It builds up to that conclusion. Yeah. We're, we're, we're running right. short so, on time. As, as they, I was as saying, they Park say. Your Carcass was incapacitated. They had this botched spinal surgery, so he was confined to a wheelchair. 
Um, so he couldn't really do uh, many public appearances or much performing anymore. However, he could still do Friars Club roasts. He was a member of the Friars, and at a roast, he could sit at the dais. This so is the L.A. Friars. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he could lean on a podium. So he had been doing all kinds of roasts for several years. He roasted Nat King Cole, uh, uh, um, Glenn Wallach's the head of Capitol Records, Dean Martin, Tony Martin, all these people. And in 1958, he was booked on the roast of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz at the Beverly Hilton uh, in Los Angeles. It was the 10th anniversary of the Friars of California. It was also a fundraiser for a Burmese leper colony, which, of course, was a popular type of 50s (laughs) charity. Art Linkletter was the roast master. And the other people on the show included Milton Berle, George Burns, Tony Martin, Dean Martin. And uh, uh, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big night. There was about a thousand people in that audience. Parky Carcass went up fifth, and uh, he killed. He had the set of his life. He brought down the house. He went and sat down at his position on the dais next to Milton Berle, and Art Linkletter said, "Take another bow, Parky. How come we don't see him on TV more often? Parky Carcass, Harry Einstein." And as Art Linkletter was saying that, uh, Parky Carcass. His face fell forward into his food and he dropped dead in front of a thousand people. And Milton Berle, who was sitting next to him, yelled, is there a doctor in the house? And people laughed because it was Milton Berle yelling this cliche (laughs) showbiz phrase. But he was truly dead. People realized something was wrong. And, of course, there were doctors in the house because it was Beverly Hills. So all these, like, famous doctors came up and tried to, like, uh, resuscitate him. They cut open his chest with a pocket knife and frayed a lamp cord nearby and tried to administer shocks from the lamp directly to his heart. But it was too late. He died on stage after the set of his life. And in order to kind of uh, distract the audience from what was going on, Milton Berle said to Tony Martin, why don't you go up on stage and sing a song, you know, get people's minds off this. Tony Martin went up on stage and sang a song that had been a hit for him called There's No Tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) That's the punchline. Did Albert Brooks give you the the, uh, Parky Carcass's routine? Uh, No, it was a fella from Florida. I did Mark Maron's show and all these nerds came out of the woodwork and sent me all these rare roasts and all kinds of interesting things. Albert Brooks' radio appearances from the 70s on a disc and stuff. So I did get that final performance of Parky Carcass, the whole roast, really. It cuts off right as he dies. You don't hear anybody. You You hear Art Linkletter just uh, like that paying tribute yeah, to yeah that that yeah. extraducing but the thing is the reason it was recorded uh knx radio was going to air it at, at, you know as the friars anniversary show so that's why there's audio of that and you can go online and, and hear it and, it's worth mentioning and, that albert albert brooks's real name was albert einstein, albert einstein. Yes, of course and and getting back to the previously mentioned dick sean mad mad world of producers yeah. oh yeah he also died on stage that's right that's right. There's three: Parky Carcass, Joey Ross, and Dick Sean. There's four. All died. Frank Sutton, who played Sergeant Carter, died on stage. Really? Yeah. In a, a dinner theater production. And I think Carmen Miranda either died <laughs> that was during back, backstage or a me- yeah, yeah backstage well, at the Jimmy Durango Singers. There's also Jackie Harry, Wilson fell into Harry a coma on stage right. that he never That's came right. out of. And maybe the best one of all is the uh, king of country swing, Spade Cooley, who was in present prison for stomping his wife to death. He had the number one. Uh, He's a honeymooners reference. Spade Cooley. Yeah. Oh, right. yes. Yeah. Spade Cooley had the top regional TV show in the 50s in Los Angeles, but he stomped his wife to death, killed her with his foot. Good Lord. Went to prison. <laughs> went to prison. A dark turn. You know, that southern musician, right? That, that, went that, to prison, was released, on, was released from print, prison on uh, one 
one-day leave to perform for an audience of soldiers, did the show, and as they were applauding, he dropped it. So. <laughs> and with that... <laughs> Quickly, quickly, give us a give us uh, one Jack Carterism. Uh, oh, one you Jack have how can you? How can they be one? Give us three. A three. Uh, you yes. Give us a three. Take oh, us out. We, we had him booked. We had him booked for the on show. this show, and uh, he went into the hospital. Right. Uh, right. Make sure the, to mention the, his parting words to you. Too, I, mu- I you must tell Gil- Gilbert was standing outside the Friars Club in the rain. We yeah. had just interviewed Paul Williams, and we and Dara said, "Good news, I booked Jack Carter." And Gilbert looked at us and he went. Well, get him quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow, and he prophetic. died, what, 10 days later? We should have called him while we were out in the rain. We should have called oh, him. I, I used to tell people, Jack Carter was like the oldest guy in the world, you know, and uh, people would ask me, they're like, how old is Jack Carter now? I go, he's 92, but he doesn't look it. They're like, oh, really? I go, yeah, he looks like he's 100. <laughs> he had eyes going in different directions. But Jack Carter was the angriest man in the world. He was hilarious off stage, not very funny on stage. But he would rant and rave about anybody you mentioned. So I remember I was interviewing him one time and I said, uh, 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 you were on an episode of The Carol Burnett Show. Yeah. Vicky Lawrence was a Nazi cunt. <laughs> <laughs> you were on an episode of, uh, of Password, weren't you? Yeah. Alan Ludden was just Bill Cullen without the limp. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. And then the last thing he said to me before he died, the last time I was at his house, and I should say, I should describe his house for you. He lived across the street in Beverly Hills from uh, Sidney Poitier. And I don't know if this was intentional, but Jack Carter was an old school guy. The first thing when you walk up to his steps, ring the doorbell, right in the corner, what you, the first thing you see is a blackface lawn jockey. <laughs> <laughs> his, his Spanish maid lets me into the house. If you look to the left, there's a solarium of plants. Right in the middle of the solarium is a sculptor's bust of Jack Carter. Which I would love to own. Oh, yes. my God. Then he takes you into his it? den. On the wall, there's an oil painting from the 70s with a butterfly collar of Jack Carter. <laughs> That's and, online. You can and then see. on the oh, other, and then on good. the other end, this keeps getting better. A different oil painting of Jack Carter in a tuxedo, and then on the wall, all these photos of him and Norm Crosby. And I was like, "Oh, you're really close with Norm Crosby, huh? Fuck Norm Crosby. <laughs> He's a thief. Fuck him. <laughs> I went to Red Button's funeral. Norm Crosby gets up. He's doing all my material, all my best jokes." <laughs> I went to Bob Hope's funeral. They asked Norm Crosby to host. Who the fuck knows why? <laughs> oh, yeah. Great Jack Carter. Wow, oh, we missed out. Oh, and the, did I say we, the last no, thing no, that he we missed out? The last thing that he said to me before he died. I was leaving his house. I had just signed the contract to write this book: "The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy." And I mentioned that to Jack. And as I'm leaving the house, the last thing he ever said to me. How does a total fucking nobody like you get a book deal? <laughs> Praise from Caesar. And then he died. And then he died. <laughs> How do we get our hands on that uh, that statue that's sitting in the solarium? That's a very good... I would good... kill to own that and put it into my museum. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you can talk book to Roxanne Carter, Con- maybe. Contact Roxanne Carter. Oh, I, don't want to, I, don't, I hate Cliff dealing with family members. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, that's it's, rough. There's always problems. That's Roxanne rough. Carter, who was Jack's uh, uh, widow, 
Uh, she was a PR person in the 60s and claims to have been the one who uh, uh, settled the feud between Ed Sullivan and Jackie Mason. That she was the go-between to get them to make up and, and have Jackie do one last appearance where they shook hands and made up. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, because that was when Jackie Mason was accused of giving right. Ed Sullivan. Right. And I saw a clip and he didn't give him no, the no, finger. No, no, no. no. And, but Ed Sullivan was a scumbag, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, I don't yeah. think anybody liked Ed Sullivan. No, I mean, well, especially comedians because he had no concept of comedy. He would say, I like that part. Cut this part out. You go, Ed, that's the punchline. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's good. Just rhythm. do that setup. It's good. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Shit Jack Carter says, is that still – can people still yeah, find that? Yeah, you can Google that hashtag, Shit yeah. Jack Carter says, and then I'll have a whole but bunch of – But there's Jack no new shit, though. No, but, but – I've started but, a new one called Shit George Schlatter says. Yeah. Because he's been uh, well, saying – George is our guest this week recently. on the podcast, but who knows when this will – when we'll put, post this. But uh, you barely scratched the surface on Jack yeah. Carter stuff. There's so much good stuff yeah. there. I drew Jack Carter for my Jewish comedian books, and he's the only comedian who hated his portrait. <laughs> and he wanted me to draw it again, too. Yeah. yeah. Tell, tell that real quickly before uh, we go. Like he, he said, he said uh, when he heard about the book, he said, uh, old Jewish comedians. And he said, old? And he was about 92 at the time. <laughs> and then he said, and Jewish? I don't work Jewish. Yeah. And, then he lo- and then he saw the drawing and he hated that especially. Right. And he said, tell him to draw me again. I hate it. He made me, he put those stupid liver spots on my head and he gave me a comb over. I don't look like that. And I said, no, one, one per customer. That's what you get. <laughs> I will tell you, though, that he, 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 had, he kept the book and it was in his closet. I had no idea. In his okay. closet. It, well, his closet, <laughs> it was like Fibber McGee's closet. It was full of stuff. And he, he, Jack, when I would go over there, he had all these great old photos. And he'd go, oh, there, there's some photos in the closet maybe you can look at. And I would grab this one photo which contradicts uh, history. It's, it was an NBC publicity photo. It's Jack Carter with Martin and Lewis. And it says, watch Martin and Lewis's television debut this Saturday on the Jack Carter show, which I've never heard before. I thought they debuted on, uh, uh, was it Sullivan? Sullivan. Now, and, and so I said to Jack Carter, I said, this photo, this is amazing. And he grabs the photo. It had mold on one corner. He grabs the photo. He goes, ah, it's all moldy. And he threw it in the garbage. Mm. I was like, good Lord, Jack. So at one point, I stashed photos in a secret Wasn't spot. Wasn't Mr. Saturday house. Night sort of based on Jack Carter, the Billy Crystal film? Maybe. I don't know. I probably heard a combination. Well, an amount, yeah, an amount him, of Jackie and, Leonard. And, Same thing with my favorite. Who's that guy who was always at the Friars Club? Um, uh, oh, uh, Gene Balos? Gene Balos. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Gene Balos claims that Jerry Lewis ripped off his act. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, now, could, we could do six Lewis episodes. Martin hated each other, right? Uh, when Martin and Lewis uh, broke I up. I never heard that. When Martin, <laughs> <laughs> when Martin and Lewis we'll broke about- up, it was around the same time that The Tonight Show had been uh, uh, kind of torn apart between – Steve Allen and Jack Parr taking over. They did this thing called America After Dark. Oh, the was, one hosted by the critics. Yeah, it was hosted by newspapermen, and it was a big bomb. And Walter Kempley, this comedy writer, said that the show was so bad, people went next door to turn it off, you know, to their neighbor's house. Um, but Dean Martin was on the premiere episode being interviewed by Earl Wilson, and there was a famous tabloid at the time called Confidential that was very salacious. And this was right after the breakup, and Earl Wilson asked him about Jerry Lewis, and Dean Martin said, what I want to say about Jerry Confidential wouldn't even print. Wow. Hot damn. It's in the book. Oh, wow. <sighs> okay. so oh. We could do six episodes yes. with these gentlemen. Yes. We didn't even get to Milton Berle's, you know, appendage. Yeah. Well, Th- think of that. But this, you know. 
There's always next <laughs> we'll time. Do a, we'll do a mini episode. How many episode. times has that come up on this uh, podcast? <laughs> All right, a, a Milton Berle stick. Now, we've just had it. <laughs> Which okay. We've covered it a lot. Yes. yes. We covered it we've last covered, night. <laughs> we've tried to cover Milton Berle stick. <laughs> and Guy Marks. It looms large. Supposedly had it. Yeah, yes. and Eddie Fisher yeah. and Cary Grant. Uh, Gary Cooper. Hunts Hall. And Hunts Hall. Hunts Hall. All right. And of course, Forrest Tucker. Well, yeah, and Gilbert Gottfried. And we had Larry. St- <laughs> we were with Larry Storch last night, and he won't talk about. He doesn't like Forrest to talk. About. He, yeah, he won't talk. It's about. a gentleman, but he's seen it. <laughs> he basically will nod his head. Yes, yes. He's a gentleman. Yes, it's true. It's true. Oh, so, Mr. Gottfried. Oh, okay. Hi, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been. Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre once again at Nutmeg Post with our engineer Frank Ferderosa. Thank you, Frankie. And we've been sitting in with uh, Drew Friedman, famous illustrator, busy illustrator, and cartoonist. And our guest today was Cliff Nesterhaus. Who's Nestor Nestor Hoff? Ah, fuck it! It's the end of the show. <laughs> Nestor Cliff Cliff Nettin fighting Cliffel Cliffel Neidelman Clyden Flavin with the Clyden toy, and he's got a book with the thing with the pages, and uh, and he's a Nachaboidel, and he's a he's a Cliffen and he's got a book with the reading and the and the publishing. He's a clip on the comedian Cliff Cliff Neidelman. Close. What? What? The book is called The Comedians Drunks the Drunks. Thieves, scoundrels, and the history of American comedy, and the Floydelmans <laughs> with the with the Nechelbeidels and the Clifton Webbers. It's a terrific read. Thank you, Cliff. Anything, any, anything else coming up that you want to plug? No, not at all. Okay, Drew. Well, just this comedy museum that you guys can see till May first, right? Which has over uh, hundreds, them, hundreds of items. Tell them where it is. Ephemera. It's at the uh, Center for Jewish History on West Sixteenth Street, and you can Google that. And uh, my uh, exhibition will be up till May first. Terrific. And I'd like to plug Scarlett Johansson. Terrific. <laughs> 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 Speaking of the Jews. <laughs> 